Our scripture this morning comes from 1 Corinthians 18 through 25. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom. But we proclaim Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. This is the word of the Lord. We have... um... Big musical presentations at 11, I always know this service will be somewhat smaller, but also that there will be a hearty group of souls that will come to this service no matter what, and you all really do exemplify that. Look around, everyone here today qualifies as being a regular at 8.30, so introduce yourselves as such. It also occurs to me as I, I mean, I spent a lot of time writing this sermon Friday and Saturday, uh, and it occurs, I'm always aware of one of the things I do when I write is to see the faces of, of people, which is different at this service than at 11. But um, on this weekend and on Remembrance Day, I see the faces of those I've known have served in the military. And it, it occurs to me that looking around at you all this morning, there is an enormously high percentage of you all at this service who are either... Uh, you know, foreign service or diplomatic service or have been in the military or were married to or children of people that have served. It, I, I'm tempted to name you, but I know I would leave somebody out and that would undo all the good that would happen by, you know, going person to person. But it really, really is a high percentage. Uh, let us pray. Dear Lord, as we gather today to remember as a nation and as a church, may the words of my mouth and may the meditations of all of our hearts, be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It was in the 10th grade that a high school English teacher introduced those of us in his class to a selection of poems and short stories and novels that that offered a critique of the day and time in which they were written, one that I have most vividly remembered ever since is a poem written during World War I by Wilfred Owen. Owen served in the British military for three years. He was killed one week prior to the signing of the armistice, ending the war at the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month of 1918, a signing whose 100th anniversary we acknowledge today. The poem is entitled Dulce et Decorum Est. It appeared in a column in the Wall Street Journal yesterday, but after I had written it into the sermon. (laughs) After describing the horror of seeing a fellow soldier gassed, 
Owen ends the poem addressing the reader. If you could hear at every jolt the blood come gargling forth from the froth-corrupted lungs, obscene as cancer, bitter as the cud, a vile, incurable sores on innocent tongues. My friend, you would not tell with such high zest to children ardent for some desperate glory the old lie. Dulce et decorum est propatria mori. It is sweet and fitting to die for one's country. Every time that I've preached on Remembrance Sunday at Westminster, I have remembered this poem for reasons that are at opposite ends of the attitudinal spectrum. On the one hand, this poem reminds me of how sheltered I have been from the ravages of war. Like many in in our nation my age or younger, the prospect of having to die for one's country has always come with very low likelihood. I was old enough to have received a draft number during the Vietnam War, but young enough to have fallen in one of those final years of the draft in which people were given numbers but were not called. While I was politically aware in high school and college years, what shaped my awareness was the civil rights movement that was going on in the city and region in which I was raised. Rather than both the Vietnam War and the opposition to it that shaped a generation just ahead of me. My personal acquaintance with those who have been willing to die for one's country has come primarily from several dozen World War II veterans whose funerals I have conducted and from those of you in this congregation who serve our nation with your lives. This lack of direct encounter leaves me feeling inadequate to bear appropriate witness to those among our friends or families who have given their lives, and to you in the congregation who, like Owen, have seen battle sites as ghastly as those he chronicled and denounced. On the other hand, it is equally difficult to preach on Remembrance Sunday because of the number of people I know in our congregation and beyond who were formed in the 1960s and 70s by their opposition to and their protests against the Vietnam War, as well as the number of people in the church in general who, when they first think of Jesus Christ, rightly think of him as the one born to be the Prince of Peace, the one who, when a disciple drew a sword to prevent him from being arrested, said, put your sword back into its place for those who live by the sword, die by the sword. The one who counsels his followers to turn the other cheek, provide the cloak as well as coat and go the second mile. In many ways, awareness of Jesus' life and ministry can lead us to Owen's conclusion that it is anything but sweet and fitting to die for one's country. 
Despite my inexperience with matters of war and peace, for some reason known more fully to God than to me, I have long felt deep within my spiritual and emotional life that evil is a reality in our fallen world and that we as human beings are prone to great infliction of it one upon another. As a child, I was keenly sensitive to the racial prejudice I witnessed around me. As a seminary student, I was horrified by the taking of Americans as hostages at the Iranian embassy and their beating being paraded before the cameras. As a young minister right out of seminary, I early on had to deal with a violent and premeditated murder committed by a young woman who had been in my youth group and whose wedding I had conducted to the man she eventually killed. And as an adult, in several segments of my immediate and extended family, as well as in many pastoral care situations, I have seen firsthand the ravages of the evil of addiction to alcohol and more recently to opioids that bring people enormous destruction, people who are created in the image of God. This deeply felt awareness of the power of evil has led me to believe that there are times in which the only way to keep evil at bay is, as a last resort, the use of force, personal, police, military. Thus, I have typically been inclined to support the use of arms and the sending of troops as a final but real response to situations in which combating the forces of evil and seeking to bring some measure of justice has been a significant part of the motivation. In that regard, I believe that the willingness to die for one's country is, if not sweet and fitting, at least absolutely necessary in a fallen world and is a calling for those willing to risk it for the sake of all of us. Such a willingness to die, as you know, is not limited to military service. People from smoke jumpers to security guards to EMTs to Secret Service to FBI to CIA to FEMA disaster workers to diplomats to police to firefighters to religious relief workers and recently to journalists enter their service largely by choice or by a sense of call and put their lives on the line to benefit others of us in their community, local or global. The most recent public example of this is Sergeant Ron Hellis, one of the first officers of the Ventura County Sheriff's Office to confront the shooter this past Wednesday at the Borderline Bar and Grill in Thousand Oaks, California, and to lose his life in that confrontation. On this 100th anniversary of the armistice, the question that I would like to address today, more now as a minister than as a citizen, is this. Is there a theological reason to remember every year those who have put their lives on the line? I believe that there is, 
And I would like to connect the theology in which we worship with the civic remembrance that we celebrate this weekend. Part of the connection comes in the church's particular understanding of memory. When we speak of memory in the church, we cannot help but be guided by our understanding of baptism and communion, particularly of Jesus' words, this do in remembrance of me. The Greek word for memory in this instance is anamnesis. Anamnesis is not simply recalling a set of facts. Anamnesis is re-experiencing, re-appropriating, entering once again into the mystery of that which we are recalling in a way that it becomes present to us and we become present to it. Anamnesis is the memory we experience when we return to an old elementary school and notice the smell is the same 30 years later. Anamnesis is the memory we experience when we return to the high school football field on which we once aspired to greatness and hear the same voice of the same coach bellowing the same words, Jones, don't just wave at the runner, tackle him. The only difference being the substitution of the name Jones for the name Hayward. That actually happened to me. I don't make this stuff up. And my elementary school did smell the same 30 years later as it did when I was there. Anamnesis is the memory we have when while twirling a daughter around on the dance floor on the evening of her wedding, we are taken back to the time we twirled her in fall leaves in the backyard and the time she was placed in our arms in the delivery room when we were afraid to do anything like twirling. In the church, when we baptize an infant, we remember once again that like the infant, we receive God's love without fully understanding it and without doing enough to merit it. And that leads us to remember that we do love God only because God first loved us. Likewise, when we partake of bread and wine, body and blood, we remember Christ's willingness to die. And it does make us tremble, tremble, tremble. Even if we are a soldier or a seal who has known many who have died. This is the nature of memory in the church. It is not unlike the memory we call forth today of those who have served our nation's nation who have given their lives in that service, or both. The connection also comes because of the church's understanding of commitment. After attending our choir's presentation of five mystical songs in Dona Nova's Pasham on Friday night, with Maggie, I asked her what she was preaching on Sunday. And she said, well, the lectionary is the widow's might. It fits with Remembrance Sunday. The widow gave everything she had, 
By giving everything, she put her life at risk. She put her life on the line. If our bulletins hadn't already been printed, I would have gone with that. (laughs) Like the widow, those we remember today gave everything they had. But the text I had chosen for today and was printed in the bulletin fits such commitment as well. In the Christian faith, the most meaningful way to live our lives is captured by the Apostle Paul's phrase, the foolishness of the cross. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, for the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to some and foolishness to others. But to those who are the called, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom. And God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Like the widow, like Sergeant Hellas, like Wilfred Owen, like the millions of others who have given their lives in battle, the mystery at the heart of faith is the foolishness of the cross, the foolishness of giving everything we have, the foolishness of living and sometimes dying for the sake of others. It isn't always sweet and fitting but neither is it always a lie. I've shared with you that this past summer I read for the first time William James's The Variety of Religious Experience. He published this classic in 1902. During that period of American history in which we were optimistic about the human condition and in which following a century of inventions, Progress and prosperity were at their height. Within a few decades, that optimism would be shattered by the 8.7 million service people and the 7 million civilians who lost their lives in what was called the Great War, the war to end all wars. Part of the wisdom of James's writing is that he knew there were limits to the human condition and to human progress so celebrated in his day. In a chapter entitled The Value of Saintliness, James describes what he calls asceticism. Life is neither farce nor genteel comedy, he said, But it is something at which we must sit in mourning garments, hoping its bitter taste will purge us of our folly. Sentimental optimism can hardly be regarded by any thinking person as a serious condition. Phrases of neatness and coziness and comfort can never be the answer. It is in heroism, James continues, that life's supreme mystery is hidden. No matter what a person's frailties, 
If that person be willing to risk death and still more be willing to suffer it heroically, that fact consecrates the person forever. The folly of the cross, he says, so inexplicable by the intellect, has yet its indestructible, vital meaning. Asceticism is the profounder way of handling the gift of existence. The practical course of action for us, he says, as religious people, would therefore not simply be to turn our backs upon this ascetic impulse, but rather to discover some outlet for it that the fruits of privation and hardship might be objectively useful. My friends at Westminster and in this larger metropolitan community, we are particularly blessed with exposure to people who have been called to sacrifice and service, who are, in the sense James describes, ascetics. Whether through the quiet ways they devote their working lives to our nation or to the way they have given their lives in that service, in many ways they are ascetics. As we remember them this day and weekend, as we listen to their stories or hear accounts of their lives, lives and deaths passed down through family lore or through published record, our task is to appropriate the best of what they offered and find in our own day and time an asceticism that brings us closer to the foolishness of the cross, that foolishness which is the only true answer to life's riddle. Amen.